Hello, I'm attorney Barry Boykin. I'm attorney Kevin Johnson. Welcome to episode 32 of Dynamite Divorce and Other Matters. Well, Barry, uh, I'm happy to say we have a very special guest with us today, Mike Wood, who has come to our virtual studio here deep underground to join us in talking about a very important topic. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Kevin. Before we jump into the topic, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because yes, I've known you for probably about two years. It's uh, now everyone else's chance to meet you. Sure, I, uh, I grew up originally in Philadelphia and I moved to Michigan for college uh, where I met my wife. And then we joined the Peace Corps together and relocated oh. to Guatemala, Central America. And uh, then we ended up back here in Chicago to stay near my wife's family. And that was in about 2005. And uh, law is a second career for me. So when we came to Chicago, I went to work in corporate management at Motorola in a business career, and then went to law school in 2011 at Chicago Kent. And I actually learned about this area, this consumer law and debt related area at law school, because as luck would have it, for me, the National Association for Consumer Lawyers uh, was holding its annual conference in Chicago. And so as a budding 1L, I had the opportunity to see this whole area and how it's practiced and to meet with experienced practitioners who laid out really a whole potential career for me, as there are uh, so many different areas of the law you can work in with consumers. And so from then on, I finished law school. But during law school, my focus was on consumer law. So my internships were with legal aids in consumer law. I was a judicial extern for a federal judge, which interested me because much of consumer law is practiced or was practiced in federal court. And um, I graduated in 2013 and joined the uh, Chicago Kent College of Law Incubator Program, which is designed for attorneys who want to go out on their own from day one. And they gave me an office and a mentor and tried to keep me out of trouble <laughs> practicing on my own with no experience. And uh, I did that for a year and then moved to my own office and have had this firm uh, ever since. And so I work with consumers who are uh, having issues with debt collectors. Sometimes they're being sued. Sometimes they're just being harassed. Uh, but in some way, the debt collection industry has uh, come into their life. And that's where I come in. Now, Mike, I had a brief introduction to you earlier. Uh, Kevin recommended that I contact you, which I did. Mike, you helped me with a case where my client, uh, and I work for a legal aid organization, the client was sued in New York, settled the case. She was a student, so it was a very favorable settlement to her. She just paid a small payment over years. And then when the debt was almost entirely paid, she had moved to Chicago. She was sued for the entire debt all over again brand new. Whoa. <laughs> but uh, with some tips I got from you, I was able to uh, negotiate uh, to make the uh, the second lawsuit go away. Yeah, not surprising. So, not surprising. Yeah. It's a, not an organized industry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one final comment that comes to my mind is that you probably have the same problem that I do. Now it's Wood, W-O-O-D. Mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of people probably add S to the end. About, yes, about half. <laughs> I get the oh. same thing. I get the half same thing. A lot, add, yeah, a lot of people put S on the end of Boykin. They say, are you Boykins? <laughs> I say, I, I'm singular. I'm not plural. I'm singular. <laughs> well, Mike, it sounds like you've already had about 
eight years in the trenches, uh, which is more than I have. It's about consumer debt, collection practices. But aside from your extensive legal experience, is there anything else that people should know about you? Is there any, I mean, hobbies or special features, extra languages or anything? I do know Spanish, which is very useful uh, in this industry, mm-hmm. as well as in my personal life. And um, I've taken a recent interest in Sudoku puzzles. <laughs> and I also weightlift. Okay. Well, the reason we brought you here today, Mike, is because, as earlier expressed, you have a deep interest and experience in consumer debt and all the things that people find themselves in, the quagmire of consumer debt, you might say. But we here in our family law world are talking about how things impact your basic divorce, paternity, custody, child support, those kinds of clients. And I think there is a deep impact as people's lives kind of spin out of control with their relationships breaking down and finding themselves in court, maybe a divorce, maybe a custody case. It's no surprise that many of these people also have debt crashing in on them and all that comes with it, like creditors ringing their phone and sending them letters. Before we go further, this podcast is no substitute for the specific legal advice you will get by consulting one-on-one with a licensed attorney in your state or country. We hope that before taking any action that might change your life or your financial situation and before making decisions that might significantly affect your children and the people around you, you do find and meet with a licensed attorney. Now, now on, with, on the with the show. You found that many of your clients are also involved in other turmoil, such as family court? Yes. Yeah, so when I have a new client, uh, one thing I, I try to always ask them is what happened? Because there's never one debt by itself that went into arrears and that they're now having problems with. When I look at their credit report and their credit profile in general, generally there's a problem that uh, impacted them across the board. And so they'll come in on one debt because maybe they're being sued, but then they'll have three or four or five others. And all of them will have stopped being repaid around the same time. And so I always ask them, so what happened? And there's always an answer. Uh, There's a myth, especially among people in the collection industry, that some people take out credit cards and then just decide to go party and never pay the debts. And I can say from experience that is not true. Uh, There is always something that happened. And sometimes it's a divorce. And sometimes it's a job loss. And sometimes it's a medical problem. And for whatever reason, a consumer becomes unable to pay some debts and and they get charged off. And once they're charged off, you can't catch up again. And so then you have these problems that we'll talk about soon. But then after some time, most people will come back. If it's a divorce, they'll get back on their feet. If it's a medical problem, they'll get healthy. If it's a job loss, uh, they'll, they'll find employment again. And then the credit companies, uh, the credit card companies and loan companies will come knocking again to offer new credit. So it tends to be <laughs> a cycle where people go down, have a problem, recover, and then hopefully they're back on their feet. Now, you mentioned it must be an industry term, uh, charged off. What does that mean to our listeners when, when a debt is charged off? If a credit card company tells you when you call to, uh, to try to fix things, maybe you've been out of out of the game for a little while and getting back on your feet and you call them and they say, I'm sorry, we can't help you. The car, that account's been charged off. What that means is that they've written it off as an asset. And that uh, on the back end technically means it has some tax implications. It has some legal implications, uh, which I won't get into, although I enjoy doing that. I'm going to not do that. <laughs> um, uh, what I'm going to focus on is the fact that once it's charged off, it's a dead account. 
And even if you came back to them and said, guess what? I'm back. I have a new job. I can pay you your 1500 American Express and I want my card, want my little green card back. Um, what they're going to say to you is, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Once an account is charged off, it is gone forever. All they can do is have you apply for a, a new credit card. So who do you pay? Who do you, if you say, I want to clear this because it's on my credit report, it looks like an unpaid debt. Is there any way to pay it to somebody? Yes, you can either, it, you would have to see who owns it. Sometimes the credit card company still owns it, even though it's charged off, so it can't be revived as a credit card. If they are the owners of that account, they're going to be the ones who are reporting it on your credit report, and they would be the ones that you pay. But in most circumstances, once a debt is charged off, the credit card companies will sell it to a third party. Wait, they buy, they buy this bad debt. And so- yes. And, and I'm sure they pay a pretty penny to buy the bad debt, right? They must pay a good price to the credit card company to take that debt off their hands, right? Oh, yes. They pay three cents, sometimes even four cents on the dollar. <laughs> so if you had a $1,500 account that went unpaid, some debt buyer, that's the, the industry term for these companies, a debt buyer will come come along and purchase it for maybe $50, $60. And then their hope is that they can collect it by credit reporting, by calling people, by sending letters, and some of them will even file a lawsuit. And uh, their goal is to collect, even if they only collect 10% of the debts they buy, if they're only paying three cents on the dollar, 3%, uh, if they get back 10%, they've tripled their money. So for an expenditure of $50 to buy that debt, they could then, if they collect $300 from hapless debtor, through a series of letters and maybe phone calls, and if they get three hundred dollars, and then the debtor just says, "That's it, forget it, don't ever call me again." They still made quite a profit. Yeah, if they can do it on many, many accounts, right? And, and right. the operative word here, in my way of thinking, is I'm just thinking about that is many, and so it's not unusual to find a an attorney uh, in court with a for a you know, uh, for a debt buying company that comes in with a giant stack of files and says, judge, okay, I've, I've got these 20 cases judged and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I've got a, a default on this one, default number two, default number three, default number four, default. And, and so that's every day. Mm -hmm. Explain. Every day okay. That. And then now default is another legal term, which bears explaining. It means that somebody has filed a lawsuit and they've sent notice or had notice sent in some legal way to the last known address of the debtor which may or may not be where they actually are. And lo and behold, the debtor doesn't respond in, say, what, 28 days, something like that. And then they can say, well, judge, I gave them notice. It's a default. And that's what you're talking about, stacked upon, stacked upon, default, 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 default. They walk in and win all these small lawsuits, but the lots of them, right? Yes. Uh, so a, a debt buyer, or really any creditor, but um, uh, the debt buyers are really the ones doing the most volume. Uh, they can obtain a default judgment against someone for not showing up. And then it's not just a debt anymore on a piece of paper, but now it's a judgment. And once it's a judgment, then the debt buyer has tools available to them where they can forcibly collect the debt. And the two main ways they do that are by uh, wage garnishment and by uh, a bank account levy. And a debt buyer and really any creditor that someone uh, allegedly owes money to, even whether they owe it or not, if, if it's claimed that they owe the money to the creditor, that creditor has a right to look at your credit report. Wow. 
-hmm. It sounds like an invasion of privacy. So just by suing you for a debt, they then open the key to your credit report. Is that right? And they don't even need to sue you. As soon as they, as soon as they own the debt, they have a right to review your credit report. And in fact, even if they're just considering the purchase of your debt, they're allowed to look at your credit report. But that would also clue them in on whether you say, for example, have a mortgage on your house. And they would mm -hmm. say, oh, he owns a house. Well, if we get a $1,500 judgment, we'll simply attach what's called a lien to the house and wait for the house to sell. And that, or we can attach different items in, that we can use in the credit report, right? Yes, they could watch for a house, although that's less common. What's more common is that they're watching your credit report for an employer. And they, oh. and they can see when, because when you apply for credit, often you're asked for your employer and for your income. And so you'll say the name of your employer, let's say you're applying for an American Express card. You'll say, you know, I'm employed by XYZ school and I make $50,000 a year, that information goes up into your credit report. And a, what we call legally a judgment creditor, so now that this credit card company or this debt buyer has a judgment against you, they are now a judgment creditor, they can watch for those employers. And if they see an employer, then what they will do is they'll send a copy of the judgment along with some garnishment papers to the HR department and the employer will start automatically deducting up to 15% of your paycheck every every uh, every other week or however often you're paid to apply toward that debt. And there's nothing you can do about it as the consumer. Did you say 15 or 5-0? So they can take 15% on a continuing basis <clears throat> until they decide the debt is satisfied and then they turn it off. Is that right? That's right. So there's a lot of information in the credit report and it's visible to anybody who starts coming after you for a debt. That's it's right. Kind of, it's kind of creepy to think about, really. It is. Now, for our listeners who are often involved in a family law squabble, such as divorce, custody, child support, sometimes there's a squabble over who actually owes money. Like, for example, divorcing spouses toward the end of a marriage. Everything's breaking down. One of them's getting real secretive. They're starting <laughs> to run the credit card. They're going shopping. They're buying things. And then both names are on it. Is there anything that the spouse who didn't charge up the credit cards can do by way of defense? Can they say, well, but, but that's not my purchases. Those aren't my bills on that credit card. When their name is on it, are they stuck? Well, I'll, I'll start with the card where you have both people on the card and one person going out and running up the card. If your name is on the card, then when... Uh, a creditor or a debt buyer later comes after you, they're going to come after the people that are on the card, regardless of who actually made the purchases. And among spouses, this can be a problem because sometimes one spouse will be responsible for managing everything. The one who takes out the credit cards, right. the one who gets the mail, the one who pays the bill. And the other spouse may not know about what cards there even are. I think that's a pretty common division of labor in marriages. And uh, this can become a problem when there's a divorce because the spouse who's not involved may not even know what credit cards his or her name are on until the lawsuit papers come. Well, they know they took out a credit card eons ago and they signed up for, say, an American Express card or, or a Visa credit card. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Name on the card refers to they were part of the contract at the beginning, right? 
That's right. Right. Well, I so, think that Mike is going a little bit further in saying that a spouse, which I've had a couple of these cases, that one spouse will get a lawsuit, be served with a summons and complaint, and that spouse has absolutely no idea that that credit card was taken out, that there's a credit card, that there's a debt, and now there's a $8,000 complaint, and the spouse says, I knew nothing about this, and I didn't authorize it. Should people be getting copies of their credit report as they're sliding into a divorce? Should they be? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I don't think that's a common practice, but that would certainly give you some insight into the debt that's mounting and maybe in the background unknown to you, right? Well, I, I'm not uh, part of uh, the divorce legal industry, but I, I would think of it as similar to a bankruptcy, where if you're going to have a, a big change and shift in assets and ownership, that it, it is important to be aware, not only for the divorcing spouses, but also for the attorneys to just be aware of what's out there. And a good way to learn what's out there is to pull copies of the credit reports for each spouse. Please tell our listeners how they can get their own credit report. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission entered into an agreement with the three major credit bureaus, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. There are other smaller credit bureaus, but those are the three biggies. And when you apply for a mortgage or to buy a car, for a credit card, those are the bureaus that are going to be used. And those three bureaus maintain a website. The uh, URL is annualcreditreport.com. And we'll put that in the notes for the episode. So listeners, if you check the episode notes, you'll see that link. I'll put it in there. And if you go there, you can download a free copy of your credit report from each bureau. And they can be different. Some credit cards report to all three, but others only report to one or one or another. It used to be that you could only get one a year, mm -hmm. but since COVID-19 started, you can now get one per week. <laughs> so pretty much at any time that you want an updated copy of your credit report for free, you can just go to annualcreditreport.com and pull it down. Now, Mike, I'm a little bit nervous to hear that you can simply go to a website and pull down someone's credit report. My hope is that each person would pull down their own credit report. That would certainly be okay. But what if somebody seeks to pull down someone else's credit report? They set about, they're going to find out what this person owes. They really want to know what this person's credit history and report are. And they just go to the website. Are they going to be successful in hacking in and getting someone else's report? Well, the security protocols are pretty strict. To get in, just to start, you need a date of birth and a social security number and a good address. Uh, but once you're in, each credit bureau will present you with questions based on what's on the report. And they'll ask you questions about past credit cards, past house payments, past car payments. And it's actually so secure that sometimes when I have the client sitting with me and we're doing it together, they'll fail the security protocol because they won't remember what their mortgage payment was in 2016. What car did you drive 10 years ago? or what car I drove 10 years ago. So they won't remember what car they drove two years ago. <laughs> right. If people, you know, nothing against uh, litigants, but if, if if everybody was thinking so clearly, there would be fewer divorces and, and bad debts and everything, I guess. Can I say, it, it struck me though, before the pod, we were talking the last few days, that this is a failure of people's ability to predict the future. So when you get married, when you join into a relationship and, and have children with this person, when you bank on them and you think this is my partner we're going along we're going the distance here and then it falls apart like in a divorce or breakup 
what it really is is a failure you you didn't predict correctly right and isn't a debt a bad debt a failure of prediction because when you get the car and you think oh 365 a month yeah i can afford it on my salary yeah and you think going forward i'll be fine and then something happened at some point you expect it i and you made the point earlier that some creditors seem to think that these people are all crafty kind of i'm going to take out the debt and i'm not going to pay it and i liked your 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 kind of spin on it is that it's it's a more happy view these people wanted to pay they intended to pay and now they can't right but that wasn't their original intention so isn't it just like divorce work where we deal with people whose expectations didn't come true their dreams kind of died or whatever you're dealing with people who expected to pay their car expected to pay their house took their credit cards thinking that they'll be fine and they were wrong it didn't come true right yeah it's unpredictable by the consumer but it's not unpredictable by the creditors the creditors already know who's going to default and how many people are going to default and this is why we pay interest even if you had perfect credit and you've never defaulted on anything you're still going to pay at least seven, eight, nine percent on a credit card. You're never going to get a credit card at two percent or one percent, which is the cost of funds uh, for the bank. Now, part of that interest covers their profit, but part of it also covers their anticipated default rates. And so, creditors are well aware of the cycle that affects consumers. And in years past, these debts were were written off and charged off, and then they just disappeared. The phenomenon of these third-party debt buyers coming in to purchase them only started in the last maybe 20 years, uh, where uh, companies saw an opportunity to take something that became worthless to a creditor, purchase it for a low amount, and then try to uh, make a lot of money and run a business by collecting it. That's a relatively new phenomenon. The only person that it's unpredictable to that they can't pay their debts is the poor consumer. Your bank probably already knew long before you did. And- People pay a sliding scale of interest too, don't they? I mean, people with with uh, poor credit pay exorbitant interest on buying yeah. a car, getting a credit card. I mean, the interest can can go right up the scale to twenty five percent. I mean, they could be paying a lot of interest, and that mm-hmm. you're saying is the bank hedging its bet. They're saying, well, we're lending to a real shaky borrower who probably shouldn't be borrowing at all, but we'll give them the money, but we're going to take it out of their skin in this high interest, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of our time for part one of episode 32. I'm attorney Kevin Johnson. I'm attorney Barry Boykin. I'm attorney Michael Wood. And we invite you to now click on part two and listen to that. Thank you very much. 